All right. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast. Today, uh, with a very interesting guest, uh, as usual, uh, Jan Becker. And uh, I must say, I'm really excited about this uh, podcast episode. Jan, I already told you now. Uh, but first things first, uh, hi, Jan. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, as, I, as I already told you that I'm really excited for this, uh, this podcast today because, um, I mean, you are definitely, um, when, when it comes to the space of autonomous driving, autonomous vehicles, it, you are definitely one of the guys to name in that space, um, without a doubt. And um, there's a lot of interesting topics um, that we are going to talk to today about. Um, you, you are uh, living in, in Silicon Valley. You are the uh, founder, co-founder of, um, of Apex uh, AI. And um, there's uh, definitely a lot that, uh, that we can talk about today. And uh, as, as usual, um, I would like to give you, uh, as, as our guest today, the, the the opportunity to kind of first things first give us an introduction about who Jan is, where you come from, and um, how you basically what what was your journey to to uh, where you are today. Sure, happy to do that. Um, so I was born in Germany, then went to high school in Germany and in the U.S. Uh, to college, both in Germany and in the U.S. So in Darmstadt, I start uh, studied electrical engineering and in new york i studied mechanical and aerospace engineering and then after i finished uh, both i wanted to stay in academia for a while looked for a phd position actually worldwide and then uh, came across one and that was over 20 years ago in summer of 97 um, came across one in braunschweig uh, which sounded really appealing and interesting and uh, was around autonomous driving. So specifically, that was a larger uh, public funded project uh, with uh, Volkswagen, um, Bosch Research, a couple of smaller companies, and uh, the Technical University of Braunschweig, uh, which then did all the, uh, the relevant software part of the project. And the topic, the task of the project was to automate endurance testing on a specific test track on the Volkswagen Proving Grounds, which are a little north of Wolfsburg in Era Lessin. Um, and uh, so we equipped over the course of um, uh, the, the total project duration, I think was three or four years. Um, over the course of the first uh, one, two years, we equipped a vehicle with um, radar, and that was before radar. Uh, was available as, as a production sensor for adaptive cruise control with LiDAR sensors, um, which was also when, when LiDAR was only used in industrial uh, automation, but not in, uh, in vehicles yet, uh, with a camera system which Bosch provided. The LiDAR was provided by, uh, at the time, a very small company, IBO. Now they're a larger company. Um, then the university, uh, another institute, developed the uh, RTK GPS system. And the institute I worked at, the Institute of Control Engineering, uh, rewrote all the major software components, uh, which then actually uh, drove the vehicle. So I worked on sensor data fusion, today we would call it the perception. Then an, a colleague of mine worked on uh, path planning, and then another colleague of mine worked on controlling the vehicle. Commercially, the biggest challenge was actually uh, that 20 years ago, cars did not have 
electronic interface to the actuator. So today we would just use the CAN bus and then interface directly with the braking system or the steering system or the powertrain. Um, that all didn't exist 20 years ago. And since we were supposed to test uh, production vehicles, we could also not just modify the vehicle with additional actuators. So we then actually built in the project a robot, which was done by another company that participated in the product in, in the project. Um, and they modified a, a robot for exhaust testing, which basically a device with three legs uh, for the three pedals. And they modified that by adding a, another actuator for the steering wheel. So there was um, sort of a human, looked like a humanoid head uh, with an actuator that steered the vehicle. Later on, they added actuators for the levers behind the steering wheel. The robot could also drive manual transmission vehicles. So not only automatic, but also manual and could shift the gears with another arm for the gear shifter. But that robot ended up being very complicated. It worked great, but it was complicated and complicated means, means expensive. So at the end, it was more expensive than the total target price of the project. And while it, it worked great, it didn't go in production as attended, intended. Uh, but that was a, an awesome project um, to learn, an awesome project to learn what works, but also um, what doesn't wor work. And that yeah, excited me so much about the field that I've actually stayed in the field of autonomous driving ever since. So that started in 97. And now it's the year 2020. So that was uh, almost 23 three years ago. Um, so then I stayed in the field in early 20, 2002, joined Bosch Corporate Research in Schwieberding near Stuttgart. Uh, Bosch is the largest automotive supplier. And in that role um, also, at least at the time, uh, the largest supplier of driver assistance systems. Um, there I worked in corporate research and developed perception systems, so data fusion systems for projects like a uh, traffic jam assist, which is very similar to the level two systems we have today, uh, but 10 years earlier in research. Um, and we also worked on a left turn assist, which prevents you from making um, unintended left turns into oncoming traffic. I think that was launched by Audi into a product a couple of years ago also. And in that project, I also developed the sensor data fusion system for that. Right. End of um, 2006, um, I then moved here to Silicon Valley um, to work at Stanford University um, during the DARPA Urban Challenge. The DARPA Urban Challenge in 2007 was the third in a, in a series of competitions organized by DARPA. DARPA is the research institute of the US uh, Department of Defense. And the, the goal of that competition was to show that autonomous driving can actually be done, it's feasible. The uh, origin of that competition was that, I, I believe in 2002, there was a mandate um, by the US Congress uh, to the Department of Defense that within, I believe, 15 years, so by 2017, one third of all military vehicles uh, in the US Armed Forces should have the ability to either drive autonomously or have the ability to be remote operated. And um, the, the series of competitions and the DARPA Grand Challenge and then the DARPA Urban Challenge in 2007 was uh, to show that that can be done. Right. Um, 
were were you uh, already aware of um, obviously this is a name that I need to need to drop at this point uh, Sebastian Thrun yeah so the team um, at uh, Stanford was led by Sebastian um, I met him I think for the first time in 2006 when I visited Stanford for the first time and um, he had just moved to from Carnegie Mellon uh, to Stanford in, I believe, late 2005. So about half a year to a year earlier before I met him. And yeah, then he, um, he I, I was still working for Bosch at the time. So he then agreed that we, Bosch and I as a person could uh, provide a valuable um, contribution to the project at Stanford. So I then moved to Stanford uh, end of 2006, originally meant for one year. Then I stayed two years at Stanford as a visiting scholar and worked full time in the what's called Stanford racing team. So the Stanford team that um, competed in the Dapper Room Challenge. Um, yeah, and since then, so specifically since 2010, I also teach at Stanford part time uh, once a year, um, a course around driver assistance and automated driving um, to give students an introduction. Um, to the field as well. Right. Um, where, uh, so I, I guess you were in the best position to then also observe uh, basically the, how, how the whole field obviously was, was shaped then by this um, um, DARPA challenge and um, also basically on, on how uh, Sebastian then went also to, in his, uh, in his role obviously then at, at Google and, and further to, mm -hmm. to push the activities. Yeah, um, interesting that you ask. I've um, actually been asked a number of times um, to write that down because I'm, I've been in the field for so long and and uh, much, much longer than, than basically everybody else, except for a very few persons. So I'm actually just in the process of um, writing that down into uh, a series of blog posts where the first and the second uh, were just published a couple of weeks ago and the third now covering uh, the history from the the Dapper Urban Challenge to today will uh, will be published in a week or two. You can find those under www.apex.ai and then look for the blog section and then you will find them there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 um, it's been interesting and um, uh, looking back in 2007, so working on, hands on working on autonomous driving, I would say taking the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley as an example, uh, probably 10 persons in, in 2007. And then there was another hotspot in, around Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, where the team was actually significantly larger, um, probably 20 persons, maybe 25 at the time. And another much smaller hotspot in the Boston area around MIT. And then in, in um, uh, Germany, uh, also competing in the DARPA Urban Challenge, uh, my former institute in Braunschweig together with Volkswagen had a team, uh, Team Carolo, um, and uh, the KIT, Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, so the TU Karlsruhe, uh, also had a team that was Team Anyway. And um, yeah, lots of. Um, Uh, people still in the field also from those times. Right. Um, there's uh, before we jump into uh, into basically um, 
you know, further going down into your time at, at, at Bosch and Stanford, um, you know, a, a question that pops up uh, right away when you say that, um, you know, that uh, there's also obviously German, German teams that participated in that challenge. Why do you think, because from my personal observation, and obviously you can correct me uh, if, 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 if that, that, is, uh, that is wrong, or you disagree in that sense, why do you think then that, you know, even back then, you know, with, the, with this challenge that, you know, there, were, there, there was definitely a awareness within, let's say, Germany as well, or let's, let's take Germany slash Europe, why do you think then, I uh, think that uh, the acceleration and basically the speed of adoption and also development has more or less happened more, let's say, than also around, uh, around in, in the States, uh, more than, for example, than in Europe? Mm -hmm. I think there, there are two aspects to this. Uh, one is um, German industry, at least back then, 10 years ago, but probably still today, is just, let's say, a bit more conservative um, with respect to risk-taking. Mm -hmm. And it's also generally the management style. Then, um, then the U.S., but then also specifically here in Silicon Valley, there's just, um, that's, and, and that's what Silicon Valley is all about. There is that startup culture, which uh, basically consists of a triangle of um, venture capital. So there's an incredible amount of risk capital, venture capital um, available here. Hundreds of venture capital firms basically on one row on, on Central Road in, in Menlo Park and then a couple um, in San Francisco. So more than, than anywhere else in the world. Uh, then there is that uh, high world-class talent coming out of the universities here. So most importantly, Stanford, uh, but also Berkeley. And that attracts, just that the vicious circle attracts a lot more talent so everybody wants to move here to work then in the field. Um, and then you have those high-tech companies and an existing startup scene. So around my office and my house here in Palo Alto, probably in a five or or 10 mile radius, there are now, I, I guess, 10,000 jobs around autonomous driving and the headquarters of Google, Facebook, Apple, all in in very close proximity, which means there's an, an, a, a constant exchange of ideas. The venture capital companies feed this ecosystem with money to, to make it very easy to start up new projects. And there's also the, the whole mentality um, that uh, risk-taking is rewarding and the mentality that failing, so taking risk, obviously what does not always work, so otherwise it wouldn't be risky um, per definition. Uh, so taking risk and then failing, taking that risk is, is actually absolutely allowed. And it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to fail as long as uh, you fail early and you learn from those failures, so you understand why you failed, and then make it better the second time. So it's not an issue that here that you start a company and that company fails. And if it failed for the right reasons and you understand those reasons, 
then there's actually also no no issue with getting starting another company with a better idea, understanding those failures, and then improving, and then maybe making the second company successful. And that's is is what Silicon Valley is all about. So as long as you fail fast and you understand why you failed, failing is actually an option. Mm. Yeah, and you know what I find very interesting is then taking it to, to the next step basically is that you know not only were there German slash European companies aware, you know, of let's say already the you know the 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 activities in the valley, you know, them uh, participating in the DARPA challenge, but also you know what is interesting to me then thinking about that, you know, you personally worked already for Bosch in uh, uh, you know in in this space. And uh, it is also obvious now also for many years that these, you know, traditional European companies also, let's say, you know, have offices in, 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 in this, uh, let's say, more specific environment, which, which, you know, Silicon Valley is, but still, you know, the trans, the, the transformation or the, the transferring, the knowledge transferring, or let's say also maybe the, the attitude towards how to do, you know, to do things differently and, and, and having kind of like a, a higher adoption rate from these things is kind of failing and not really, you know, yeah, not failing, but it's, it's not really successful to be honest. Right. Or would you, would you, would you disagree with that? Um, uh, no, I, w I, w I would not disagree. So the, if you'd ask me maybe a year or two ago, um, and let me put it this way. So one aspect is that, if you look at, at Google here and Google fund started what is now Waymo and is still funding Waymo, um, obviously the whole, whole business model is a lot different. So Google makes um, an incredible amount of money with advertisement. And I just read yesterday that an analyst firm concluded that uh, Google Waymo is putting about 1 billion a year into developing technology and maintaining the fleet for self-driving, that's obviously a, a significant investment, which is not made easily. And if you look at um, companies in the space today, so the both the, the car companies and um, the large suppliers, making an investment of a billion a year into a technology where, to be honest, it's not clear yet when there will be a significant return on, on, on that invest is, is a lot to ask. So it's easy for Google. It's really much harder for any other existing automotive company where um, you basically have to, hey, have to make that investment out of your existing cash flow which is, is much uh, smaller than for, for internet companies. And in addition, you also have to remember that the automotive industry um, today is under a, a lot of pressure already. It's not just that autonomous driving needs to be developed. There's also the, the change of uh, the powertrain from an internal combustion engine to electrification, which changes the whole industry. Right. also makes unfortunately a lot of jobs obsolete because it's just much simpler to build an electric powertrain than to build an ICE based powertrain. Um, then business models are changing. The, uh, the trend to a connected car then, then opens up new business models, which are also business models from which 
not always the car industry profits, but also the, the entertainment, infotainment, inter internet industry. Um, so revenue uh, changes, uh, which means then automotive industry overall is under a lot of pressure. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you look at Aptiv here in the US, so Aptiv formerly Delphi, they split up a couple of years ago into traditional business state in, in Delphi, uh, software heavy uh, future business moved into Aptiv. Um, Aptiv didn't have anything, uh, or Delphi didn't have anything 10 years ago. Then they made, in, in the field of autonomous driving, then they made a small investment I believe 2013-ish, maybe 2014, bought a small company out of Pittsburgh, out of Carnegie Mellon, called Automatica. Then uh, I think two years later, must have been around 2016, um, bought an autonomy for a lot of money. The press says 450 million. Um, and now more recently, they moved that just a couple of weeks ago into, um, I think it was finished a couple of weeks ago, announced end of last year. They moved that into a multi-billion dollar business into a joint venture with uh, Hyundai. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Carl, uh, Carl, formerly MIT professor, uh, one of the founders of Newtonomy is now heading that business. So that on the other hand shows that it's actually possible also for an automotive company um, to compete in the field and um, to get an investment and to build up a company that can actually invest in the space and compete with Waymo. Yeah. Yeah, hundred um, percent. There's um, there's a lot of good examples in that sense. But uh, you know, to kind of conclude uh, your personal chapter, also, you know, in in in, mm -hmm. in the more traditional uh, corporate scene, um, what is it then for you that you took away from you know uh, from from let's say working at Bosch as well, you know, and and the, the, the you know um, it's it, the the thoughts for me is funny because. You know, you were already in this special environment that you, you made. You made the move, you know, to Silicon Valley, which is kind of, you know, it's 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 far from from you know the reality. You know, it's far from from what life is. For example, in uh, in in I don't know Wolfsburg or uh, you know some some other city. It's it's a special ecosystem. But what for you then was the biggest learning in that sense from from working for Bosch? You know, many years. And what it, what is what is it that you you, you took away from that? Yeah, maybe then, uh, thanks for asking, maybe to finish that then quickly. So I then worked at Bosch here in, in Palo Alto um, from uh, 2009 to 2015, um, started autonomous driving here um, for Bosch and also started robotics in North America. And there we started to work to explore the ecosystem here. Uh, specifically, we started to work with a company um, back then called Villo Garage, uh, yeah. Villo Garage on Villo Road in, in Menlo Park and the garage uh, in the name is actually an homage to the HP garage and some other garages where some of the most significant companies in Silicon Valley started in a garage. Um, <laughs> and Villo Garage was uh, started by one of the first Google employees, Scott Hassan. Um, I think he was Google employee number six, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, later on, he after Google, he then also started a company called eGroups, which was then acquired by Yahoo to become Yahoo Groups, which was for many years in the earlier days of the internet, the by far largest group email service in the world. And he then, Scott concluded that robotics is the next big thing. And then they looked at 
uh, what is actually missing in robotics and what can we do um, with robotic technology. They actually try to compete in the DARPA Urban Challenge, but that uh, started a little later than everybody else figured that other companies like uh, the big universities are, are much further ahead, they gave that up. They built an autonomous boat, uh, but then didn't really know what to do in autonomous, with an autonomous boat, so then they gave that up. Then they looked at personal robotics, so rob robots that work in environments uh, with humans, and uh, looked at why is that field not making as much progress as, as at the time. The first iPhone just came out in 2007, or computer graphics was a big thing 13 years ago. And then they found, yeah, robotics is, is, is very multidisciplinary and uh, reuse of results due to the fact that robots are much more complex than a simple computer. They need electronics, they need motors, they need sensors. Um, so then they looked at what needs to be done to enable reuse, enable joint development, and enable an ecosystem. And what they found is that platforms are missing. And then they started to build platforms and Villa Garage was set up as, an, as a nonprofit. So they built a robotic hardware platform out of a project out of Stanford uh, called PR2, Personal Robot 2. And they built a software platform called, also originally coming out of a project in Stanford called Switchyard, um, then became ROS, R-O-S, the Robot Operating System, which um, the, where the first version was released in 2010, uh, together with the first uh, of 20 of those robots. Then Villa Garage, with funding from Scott, gave away 11 of those 20 robots for free into what they called the PR2 beta program. Um, and for free under the condition that everything the recipients uh, would develop with those robots in terms of software packages has to go back into ROS, into open source. Uh, and into open source under a license, it's the Apache 2 license, that um, enables reuse, reuse both in uh, open source and closed source in products uh, in order to enable products. And um, that was actually the jump start for us. Then in that pro uh, project, 10 universities got selected, Stanford, Berkeley, MIT, Georgia Tech, Munich and Freiburg in Germany, uh, also University of Tokyo, and one corporate lab, and that was actually my lab at Bosch uh, in, in Palo Alto. So we worked alongside um, a lot of, you know, the leading academic labs in robotics and, and worked on open source. Uh, interesting that Bosch participated because Bosch is a commercial company, but Bosch is actually very long-term focused. So that is one of the great things working at Bosch, that uh, Bosch was able to make that long-term investment invest into robotics, invest into open source, and then generate learnings from that. Um, that and, and now ROS is omnipresent in, now 10 years later, ROS is omnipresent in uh, both academia, but also in corporate environments, in, including ROS, in, including Bosch. And what ROS provides is essentially everything you need in order to get started working on a robot. Mm -hmm. uh, a very simple comparison is um, when you want to develop an iPhone app or an Android app, uh, app 
Apple or Android gives you a so-called iOS SDK or an Android SDK. Yeah. SDK stands for Software Development Kit, yeah. and that's then a kit that contains all the functionality you need to develop an app mm-hmm. that is common to all apps. So from accessing the camera, accessing the speaker, accessing the microphone, uh, allocating um, space and memory to store data, um, starting a keyboard, and then the keyboard looks the same across all apps, accessing the screen and displaying screens, creating an icon. Um, also, it enables to run on different platforms. So actually, you develop only one app, and iOS SDK then uh, makes sure it runs on on an iPhone 6, on an iPhone 7, on an iPhone 8, on an iPhone 10 with a large screen or a small screen. Um, so it abstracts the hardware underneath. And now jumping forward, the reason I'm, I'm telling all this is what we now do at Apex AI is we take ROS, which is omnipresent in academia and in corporate R&D, and we make that a product, a supported safety certified product that does not only cater to academia and R&D use, but that actually enables ROS to be used in the product environment and to develop products with it. Right. Yeah. Um, before let's before we jump into into Apex and and uh, really let's say uh, give our listeners the chance to to really understand what what you guys are doing there. Um, let's chronologically uh, finish finish off. Uh, let's say your your path uh, because what what is interesting to me is um, that you know you were very much early in the space of, 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 of autonomous driving and uh, and uh, there's there's still one piece uh, missing that that uh, we haven't touched upon is that there's uh, there's another activity uh, as far as, as as far as I understood uh, from mm-hmm. uh, from your LinkedIn profile is uh, that you also joined a, a very let's say you know the opposite of a more traditional company. Uh, so mm-hmm. you you actually joined uh, Ferrari Future, um, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe you know there's two things that are inter- they're interesting to me. So first one is obviously um, you know maybe tell us everything <laughs> tell us everything you know about that time uh, in a in a summarized way obviously. But second is um, because you were you know you were in that spot. Uh, I'm also curious how, um, when, when was the first time that you also encountered, you know, Tesla, you know, and, 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 and basically, um, how you observed them as well. But let's say, let's, let's start with the first part, uh, kind of like summarizing your time at Ferrari, how that actually even happened, you know, how did you end up there and, you know, just kind of giving a quick summary on that. Sure. Um, so in 2015, after having spent a, lo- a long time at Bosch, um, I wanted to explore something new. And uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm very grateful for the years at Bosch. I learned a lot. Um, I built up a lot. And uh, but at, at some point, I wanted to explore a, let's say, more agile and more risk-taking um, environment. Um, talked to a number of companies, um, got approached by a number of companies and uh, 2014, 2015, 2016 um, was the time where specifically here in California, 
um, a number of car companies started. So Tesla started obviously several years earlier, uh, but then there's uh, Biden with Chinese investment, um, uh, Lucid Motors, Faraday Future, a couple of others, um, and a couple more followed, like um, Canoe, for instance, in in LA. Um, and uh, at at the time, 2015, the outlook was actually great. Um, the specifically behind Faraday Future, an investor from China, um, supposedly with a lot of money, um, with great plans, with which I confidentially also then saw in, in 2015 with a great and um, and uh, so at the time they hadn't made the car public yet with a great car prototype. Um, so there was an, and an awesome team, really a great team already existing. The first 200 uh, employees at Faraday Future. Um, so there was a lot of potential there. Um, and then I decided to, uh, out of the many offers I had on the table at the time, I decided to join Faraday Future to take over the vehicle automation team um, for that project. Mm -hmm. And while then the, the first car, the FF91, was revealed a year after I started at CS 2017, it also became um, clear that not everything, and by now I think pretty much everything's been in the press, uh, but uh, then it became a little more clear that not everything that uh, the founder and investor had promised uh, actually substantiated. So then I, early 2017, decided to uh, leave the company again and then um, mid-2017 uh, started Apex AI after I had left Faraday Future. Uh, that is uh, that is uh, definitely very interesting. So um, then again, following up with my second question, um, when was the first time you were you you got aware of Tesla? Um, mm -hmm. Because that that is uh, obviously if we talk about you know um, about autonomous driving and and everything, uh, we obviously need to touch upon uh, upon that company. Uh, when was the first time you basically you know got to know of Tesla and and how did you observe? you know, their, mm -hmm. their whole uh, development throughout the mm -hmm. year. Yeah, so um, funny that you ask. So that was actually, um, must have been 2000, um, I think 2009, 2008 or 2009. So right after um, the DARPA Urban Challenge, we did a vehicle, um, a demonstration of the, of the Stanford vehicle on Stanford campus, probably a year after the DARPA Urban Challenge. Um, and um, I was wearing the Stanford team t-shirt and next to me stood a um, gentleman and I didn't know at the time who that was. Turned out later on that was um, uh, Steve Jurvetson. So one of the... Um, founders and partners of DFJ, so Draper Fisher Jurvetson, which is one of the, the larger venture capital um, companies here in Silicon Valley. Right. And uh, if I remember correctly, he was an early investor in Tesla at the time. Right. Um, so he asked me if, um, he, he told me yeah, he's invested in that car company here in Silicon Valley uh, called Tesla and if I wouldn't want to work for them. And, um, 
uh, at the time that was obviously six years before also Tesla um, launched a, um, a Tesla autopilot, so vehicle automation product. So at the time I, I said, no, that's interesting. Um, but I'm actually I'm very happy where I'm working at Stanford. Um, and, um, and, and, and at Bosch. And you know, in, in hindsight, um, that was also a very good decision um, because the, um, the working style and the, the working climate at Tesla is actually um, not where I personally would like to work. Um, <laughs> but do you know, Tesla has to receive a lot of credit with driving the whole car industry towards um, uh, towards uh, electrification and and showing that it's possible to commercially build uh, a vehicle with an electric powertrain and build up a charging network at the same time. So he is clearly he has been driving forward um, the whole industry. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the perfect question now to ask in order to make this whole transition from, let's say, your personal, your personal journey uh, into, let's say, more the matter at hand is, um, uh, is, let's say, straight away asking, what is your take? Uh, and if there was a moment in time to uh, say everything that you, that you think about it is, I think it's now, what is your take on autopilot? Mm -hmm. What is my take on autopilot? Yeah. Um, so, how should I start? So it's um, uh, first the first. Let me put it this way: so Tesla has has done a great job marketing the function in terms of making it simple for the general public to. Um, to understand what it does. So if you compare it with um, with uh, Mercedes, for instance, Mercedes was earlier to market, 2013 versus Tesla Autopilot launched, I think, 2015. Um, the Tesla name is, if I remember correctly, Distronic Plus with Steering Assist. Right. Tesla calls it Autopilot. Um, which of the two can you remember easier? Clearly autopilot. Um, on the other hand, um, they marketed it a little too aggressively in the sense that um, less technically inclined persons um, overestimate the system's capabilities. Then in addition, um, the the way the that Tesla tuned the systems that monitor driver attention. So, for instance, there are hands on wheel, or more specifically, um, driver input to torque on the steering wheel. Um, they just tuned that slightly less aggressively, making it easier for drivers not to pay attention, and. Also, in the early years of Tesla Autopilot, they um, made the consequences for the driver of not paying attention less severe than, uh, for instance, a Mercedes or Audi or a more conservative company would. Um, and that, unfortunately, 
in the earlier days of Tesla Autopilot led to um, led to the uh, a couple of accidents in which a couple of persons died just because they 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 developed too much trust into the function and and you, you know that's also a it, it's it's basically an unsolvable situation the better a level two system becomes and tesla autopilot is clearly very is, is very good in terms of performance the better such a performance becomes the closer the driver perceives it to a higher to it to be a higher level Mm-hmm. The more trust the driver develops, the less likely is the driver to pay attention, mm-hmm. which then makes it even more important that the vehicle monitors driver attention and then takes appropriate measures, whatever those measures are, to then remind the driver that he or she needs to pay attention um, and that the driver per definition in a level two system is still what we call the fallback solution in case there is a system failure or the system overlooks a, a, for instance, you know, one of the accidents was caused by a white truck crossing the highway and neither the camera system saw the white truck and uh, under the white uh, clouds, nor does the radar system, nor is the radar system able to, um, to detect a lateral motion. Right. Um, yeah, I think at that time they, they, Tesla did not put an emphasis on driver monitoring, right? Um, so Tesla actually in, in principle uses the, at, at least at the time, used the same general technology that other companies are using, which is you monitor whether the driver um, still contributes to the steering of the vehicle. So you monitor the torque which the driver inputs onto the steering wheel mm-hmm. now the, the the where the difference comes in is what do you then do with once you detect that the driver is not actively steering anymore right. and um, um, what tesla is doing now and what other companies did earlier then tesla is you you give the driver a warning you give a second warning and then you shut off the function we shut off autopilot and and the last time i drove a, a model x and that's probably two years ago it was actually tuned such that um you then have to actually shut down the whole vehicle park shut down turn off the vehicle and only then you can reactivate autopilot again after you have not paid attention hmm. yeah uh the interesting part comes to um you know in situations where basically the driver falls asleep, for example, right? Uh, or um, under whether the driver is under the influence of, uh, for example, narcotics or alcohol, you know, in that sense. Because then, uh, because then, you know, the situation would be the following. I mean, you know, hands might be the, in the steering wheel, um, but uh, you know, the interesting part obviously would be to to uh, use um, use computer vision. To uh, in order to detect, you know, the state of the driver. Yeah, and those uh, systems exist. One company I came across probably four years ago, uh, just one out of many, is called Seeing Machines. Um, they actually do have 
uh, interior cameras. And, and at Bosch, we had those cameras 20 years ago. At the time, they were developed for monitoring um, dri driver and passenger position um, to adjust airbag deployment. Mm. Um, uh, those cameras exist. Now the technology is a little different. It's mostly used. Uh, infrared cameras are being used. But, you know, there are some corner cases which are just harder to solve. So, for instance, what, uh, how do you deal with sunglasses? Um, with infrared, it works with more sunglasses, but I, I'm not sure if it works with all. Uh, so, there are just some corner cases which are harder to solve. I think we'll have that technology eventually in vehicles, though. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I also believe that this is necessary, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, just a matter of looking at the statistics, right? In terms of um, the the let's say cases, a number of cases of, of for accidents, and and the reason behind it either being uh, you know people being under the influence or um, or let's say um, tiredness, right? Sleeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but since we're talking about Tesla, I would actually like to. Uh, draw the topic onto another contribution that Tesla made, which which often gets overlooked, which is the changes uh, to the to the vehicle architecture Tesla made much earlier than everybody else. Okay. If you look at um, at a typical driver assistance systems today in the market, uh, level one or level two, it's basically a combination of um, distributed sensors. For instance, you have one or two or three or five radar sensors around the vehicle, and you then have a camera. They communicate over CAN bus and uh, sometimes Flexray or, or Ethernet, but usually CAN bus and the compute. Um, so there's a microcontroller in each sensor, and uh, there's a, the function the compute then runs in one or, or two of those sensors. Tesla, um, from the beginning, um, work towards a centralized architecture where there's a centralized um, control unit for autopilot or then whatever the respective um, function is, which um, is, is a game changer. I mean, that's really the game changer um, behind autopilot, which often gets overlooked. The um, centralized control unit then enables uh, significantly more compute power for the function, so in this case for autopilot, that enabled um, computer vision mm -hmm. much, much, much earlier, and a, the, the whole software then changes. You do not have distributed pre-processing, for instance, in the radar, um, and uh, then sensor data fusion on a high level, for instance, in a camera, but you know, on object level. But um, the, 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 the more you centralize, the more data you can feed into that one system and the more powerful the compute and the more, the, the, the more options you have on the compute side there. And Tesla launched with that in... Um, 2015, they changed supply a couple of times for a while it was mobile eye based. Then it was um, uh, NVIDIA based. And then they uh, already years ago 
um, started to, to develop their own, not only boards, so it's the ECUs, but also their own chips for machine learning on their boards. Right. And uh, no other car company has done that. In addition, you know, they, uh, which, which is more well known, they also addressed um, through that centralized architecture, which is again was the enabler, um, over the air updates from the beginning, yeah, so yeah. from the la- from the launch, um, Tesla can obviously within the physical limitations of what um, the ECU can compute, but that's you know similar to any phone. That more power uh, software that requires more complex uh, computations that requires more complex hardware. So it's not backward, backward compatible forever, but within those limitations, they can update and upload new functionality onto the car over the air. Show me any other car on the market today that can do that. Tesla launched that five years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you as well, uh, because, uh, and I believe that as well, that, you know, Tesla pushing hard, you know, for achieving level five, and uh, they most probably will be the ones that, that will, you know, that will get there first. Um, I also believe that, um, you know, in order to, in order to really have that also on an, on scale and also let's say from a, from a cost perspective, you know, this is really, this is really necessary. And then basically, you know, coming from, uh, from a position where they, you know, where they, where they were in a, a buy, buy position into, let's say, you know, switching to a, a make themselves uh, position. Uh, that's really mm-hmm. uh, really a powerful uh, step, and also just shows on how much of a software company ultimately they are, and and how, why they are, let's say, being being valued the way they are being valued. At, you know, obviously um, taking into consideration multiple other factors, but that is mm-hmm. one of the examples um, that I also would hundred percent agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. Let's then make the transition to, um, you know, to Apex. Um, you, uh, you are one of the, one of the founders of Apex. You're the uh, CEO. And um, now first things first, obviously, um, give me the elevator pitch for Apex. Mm-hmm. So it's actually very simple. What uh, I've already talked about Ross before and uh, the fact that Ross is omnipresent in academia and used by hundreds of companies for R&D, but then where companies taking it into products um, get stuck is, you know, taking, building a product with ROS that needs to run in real time and that needs to run in a safety critical environment. That's exactly what uh, we solved. So we take ROS, we leave the architecture, so specifically we take ROS2, which is the second major release after 10 years of ROS1, and it came out in 2018. Uh, We take ROS2, we leave the architecture, and most importantly, the APIs, so the programmer interfaces, uh, the way they are, so they actually really work well. And we rewrite part of the code, so specifically those software components that need to run in real time on a vehicle Mm -hmm. and we rewrite those such that they are capable of running in real time and such that 
we can take them through, which we're doing right now, we can take them through functional safety certification. So to explain what that is, there's a, um, a norm, which is IEC 61508, which is the norm that defines functional safety for technical systems. And functional safety is defined as the freedom of unnecessary risk um, uh, with respect to failures that then have a safety impact. So persons or matter uh, gets damaged or injured. Um, and then specifically, there's a derivation of that norm for road vehicles. That one is more well known. It's called ISO, the International Standards Organization, norm 26262. And that defines functional safety for road vehicles. So in a nutshell, what that norm then provides is um, levels of safety. Mm -hmm. So for what kind of application should you or do you achieve which level of safety? And that's typically derived from a so-called HARA, a hazard and risk analysis, mm -hmm. where you look at what could possibly go wrong in your system and what is the worst possible outcome of that. So in other words, if your radio doesn't work, that's an inconvenience, but that's not a safety risk. Right, right, if right. your um, brake doesn't work, that's more than an inconvenience. It's a safety risk because you cannot break your vehicle anymore. Um, but then you, you also look at uh, uh, things like your parking brake. So a, a bad failure would be your parking brake with a brake uh, engages while driving on the freeway at high speed. That could you know, lead to the vehicle becoming unstable and you crashing and dying. So that's also a, a risk with a potentially high impact. And so it provides that risk and safety classification, but then it also provides for both hardware and software, a, um, I would call it a collection of best practices mm -hmm. as to then how, and it goes very much into detail, without prescribing a specific solution, how to achieve with technical systems in hardware and software, the uh, required safety level. And then, so speaking specifically, the uh, four levels are defined. ACEL, which stands for Automotive Safety Integrity Level, A, B, C, and D. Mm -hmm. where D, D is the highest with the strictest requirements and A is the lowest with the least strict requirements. And then below A, it's, it's called QM. Basically for your radio, you would manage um, your radio with quality management, but it doesn't have a safety impact. But then there's, it sounds very simple. In practice, it's actually not um, because there, there are a lot of steps in between. For instance, your infotainment system, which is essentially your radio, but now it's also connected to your instrument cluster. And your instrument cluster contains warning lights and your warning lights show whether your braking system works or not. Mm -hmm. So that all of a sudden makes your instrument cluster safety relevant. Right. Um, just to give you an example, but not, not 
to the highest level because if the warning lamp doesn't work, there's no immediate uh, risk, but it's, 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 there's, uh, there's the warning light doesn't work and your brake fails, so two failures would need to occur. Okay. But to come back to, to your question, so we are currently in the process and we're almost finished of rewriting ROS such that it then fulfills the highest level of functional safety according to ISO 26262, which is ACLD. And we are currently in the process with the TÜV Nord in Germany um, to then also take that through functional safety certification, which is a very complicated and time-consuming process basically means we need to show to the TÜV that we fulfilled all the steps for the software packages that we are providing and we fulfilled the steps to the highest level, so to ACLD. And then at the end, we basically get a certificate from the TÜV um, saying that our product APEXOS, which is automotive grade ROS, um, fulfills the ACLD requirements. Right. And with that, then customers, so those could be vehicle OEMs or, or tier ones or also uh, software companies can actually put it into their product. Mm -hmm. So build a product on top of it without having to recertify or look at Apex OS. They can so, just use it out of the box. So, so what would be then the scenario, scenarios of a customer basically acquiring Apex.OS? Uh, and um, and then building uh, and, and building stuff upon it. Like what 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 uh, what would uh, the scenario look like? Mm -hmm. So the most common we see a lot of different scenarios, but the most common one is that a company could be a car maker, could be a tier one, approaches us, or you know we we work with tractor companies and trucking companies. Company approaches us, uh, telling us, hey, we have a prototype running with ROS, mm -hmm. which is great. And now we want to develop a product. Can you help us develop that product? And then we tell them, yes, we can. Um, we have a, a version of ROS to make it simple for them. We have a version of ROS called APEXOS, which uses the same interfaces, but is already safety certified and provides you a real-time requirement. And both is equally important because mm -hmm. ROS is also not uh, doesn't give any real-time guarantees. Um, and then we um, typically have a meeting with that company and after the meeting, we sign an NDA and with an NDA, we go into a workshop and then we spend a day or two. Pre-COVID times, typically we travel to the customer. Now we do it over a video call. Um, then we have a workshop with customers anywhere from a day or two to two days uh, where we go into all the details and explain all the things that APEXOS does differently than ROS. And then the customer makes the decision to, to adopt ROS or not, uh, to adopt APEXOS or not. And um, yeah, at that point, usually the decision is yes. And at that point, we then basically sell software licenses, including support um, to those customers. Okay, so ultimately the product of uh, of uh, of Apex OS is an API, right? Or a, or more so, APIs. So the product is basically a set of software libraries. Okay. Which then provide APIs 
to the customer developers, which then perform all the tasks that ROS does today, mm-hmm. but in a safe, real-time, reliable, and certified way. Okay. Yeah, and then it's basically that package. So um, mm-hmm. do you believe then also that, you know, if, if we're saying like say, or in, in, in the context of safety, um, they also, there obviously needs to be some sort of, or over time there might, might be such a thing as a standard coming, coming along. Do you believe mm-hmm. that, you know, that a single company basically, you know, the same as, for example, if we, if we, if we look at what, you know, uh, what, uh, what traditional automotive, uh, the automotive industry or OEMs are, are you know, working upon right now in, in kind of building a standard operating systems for vehicles, uh, mm-hmm. you know, coming, making that um, comparison to, for example, what we've seen in the, in the, in, 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 in with, uh, uh, with, uh, Android, um, kind of having this comparison, basically being a standard. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that also in this case, for example, for uh, there, there could be like a single company that that stands behind that standard? Mm-hmm. Um, so in many ways, ROS today is actually that standard. Okay. Um, so ROS is the Android of robotics. Okay. And what uh, uh, ROS is missing. And in that context, the comparison with Android is actually also not quite fair. But what ROS is missing is actually then the ability to run in real-time systems and to run in safety-critical systems. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what we provide, what we add on top of ROS. Mm-hmm. And we, we actually have the huge advantage that we do not need to rewrite all of ROS from scratch, which also would be impossible. There are hundreds, tens of thousands of users. I think if I, if I, if I looked correctly in the, there's a, a, a ROS metrics report, how many people use ROS every day uh, or every, every month or year. Um, I believe in 2019, uh, 200,000 people um, accessed uh, ROS uh, software and downloaded it. Right. Um, forgot whether it was a month or a year, but it's it's a, it's a tremendous amount worldwide. And um, so, in that sense, it's it's already the the Android of robotics. What's missing is the safety critical piece. We are adding that. We don't need to rewrite all the tools, the whole ecosystem mm-hmm. around ROS. You know, there's software for recording, for playback, for visualization. Um, for a, a complete build system for the software that actually works well, and we reuse it. We, for some, for some of those, we do it's called the tool classification um, step. But generally, uh, we reuse those, and we don't have to rewrite those. So we really just focus on a small part that needs to be rewritten. But otherwise, we stay in the ecosystem and we leave the ecosystem intact. Mm. Um, Another aspect, since you're asking what standards are, uh, another aspect is there is, it's not really a standard, but it's a consortium that has formed already 20 years ago in automotive called Autosar. Mm -hmm. And they have built also a software architecture for small and large ECUs, which 
ROS comes from the robotics side of things and was really developed by developers for developers. Autosar comes from the automotive industry side of things. And um, both are actually required. Uh, so for instance, Autosar is the software architecture um, and defines the APIs for, for instance, that are used in a braking system ECU or, or in other ECUs. And we have to interoperate with those. So we are actually now also in the process of providing an interface to Autosar. We do that with uh, the largest manufacturer of, of Autosar software together. Mm -hmm. So we are um, catering to both the, the software developers, but also to the, to the system that is predominantly used in industry. Mm. Um, there's also, there's, uh, there's two other things that obviously we gotta touch upon. Uh, besides Apex OS, um, which is Apex Autonomy and uh, Morph Automotive, mm -hmm. um, maybe maybe we, uh, we 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 go into these ones as well. Sure. Um, um, before I talk about Apex uh, Autonomy, um, I want to talk about Autoware. So Autoware is um, an open source stack, just like ROS, right. but for the application layer. ROS provides basically the plumbing, the, all the communication, the tooling, everything you need to build an autonomous system. And then AutoWare is an open source stack, which provides um, actual functional algorithms. So localization, planning, perception, LiDAR perception, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now Apex Autonomy is again the productized, real-time, and ultimately supported version of that. Mm -hmm. And we've so far done that for the LiDAR perception. So within Apex Autonomy, we do have a real-time product LiDAR stack. Uh, we haven't touched yet the other parts, but generally our approach there is actually that um, um, we don't want to do that by ourselves. You know, building, I, I mentioned earlier that I think that Waymo is probably spending close to a billion um, dollars a year to maintain the fleet and develop a stack. And that's uh, obviously an incredibly large amount of money. So we don't have that investment and, and most artists don't have that investment um uh, available so what our approach is instead is rather than trying to build the whole stack by ourselves we are trying to partner with um as many companies with a similar mindset that we have and try to develop components for autonomous driving so we do lidar perception Others do, for instance, motion planning, yet others do control, others do computer vision. And um, we all do that based on the same architecture. And the architecture is ROS, and the commercialized architecture is ApexOS, which is the same architecture as ROS. So that's our approach to solving, as a smaller company, um, a complete autonomous driving stack. Mm -hmm. um, 
what um, you know the question that I that I raised uh, for myself as well and also in many conversations is the as of right now almost every company that is let's say in the uh, mobility space um, either it be a, a, a traditional OEM or a, a first year uh, supplier is working on on let's say a, a stack or solution towards um, uh, towards either level three level four whatever wh whatever level that ultimately is but is working on basically on on, on autonomous um, autonomous systems and the question that i have in, in that sense is once once uh, or the assumption can be made that driving ultimately has been solved right um, but the complexity the complexity of scenarios which um, then you know, are obviously much more, uh, much more complex from, uh, from how a, a human reacts to certain, um, certain situations are, um, are differentiating obviously. But my question there is, if driving is solved, why, is, why are there so many? And obviously it will result, once it has been uh, solved, you know, it is, um, it is accessible for everybody, right? It is, there's um, the same as it, it becomes a standard ultimately, right? Why, why do you think, or what is, what is your explanation for that? Why are there so many companies then trying to, let's say, or putting efforts into that, you know, building, building these systems? So to, to repeat your question and to make sure I've, I've fully understood. Uh, so you're asking why are there so many companies building autonomous vehicle software? Right, exactly. Okay, so um, I actually have a very clear opinion on this. So to my opinion is that building a full stack is a requires a tremendous investment. You see that Waymo has been doing that for several years now with obviously a, a lot of spending per year. Um, there are very few large companies that have the ability to do that so amazon just spent 1.2 billion us dollars to to buy zooks um, the largest automakers so toyota and volkswagen probably have that ability um, more and more companies are going into partnerships so mercedes just announced a partnership with nvidia for instance um, to split up the cost uh, then you have um, many smaller companies, smaller startups that appealed, uh, 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 attempt to build a full stack. I think that's not going to work, not going to be successful mm -hmm. with a couple of 10 million or even a couple of 100 million US dollars. You will not be able to build a full stack autonomous driving vehicle that works in a level four in a, in, a, in a reasonable level four environment on a public road you can probably do that for a very dedicated application like a specific construction zone or maybe only a low speed shuttle but it'll be very very hard to generalize that 
Now, again, our approach to this is to only address one specific component of the stack. In our case with Apex as a component that I think scales the best. So scales into basically any application because you know everybody building an autonomous system needs uh, communication and a, a compute environment and so on. Um, and then we work with other companies which have a similar mindset, which is they focus on a very specific component that they can develop really, really well. For instance, we are working with a company, Embotech in Switzerland. They, they, they develop probably the best-in-class motion planner. Mm -hmm. They're also so realistic that they're saying, yes, that's exactly what, what we do best. We focus on that. What's behind that is actually a, a, a nonlinear solver, so they can solve a set of nonlinear differential equations in real time. And then on top of that, they've put a motion planner. So they have one specific set of expertise and they're applying that now to specific problems and come up with the best in class solution. Um, that's a company type of company we like to work with because that is to me is realistic. Building a full stack with a couple of $10 million is not realistic. Uh, yeah, and then I think that's, that's what we see with a lot of traditional companies now in that sense, right? Yeah. And now it's uh, due to COVID-19 and the economic crisis that comes along with it, we will actually see um, the space uh, being, being filtered out. You know, only the healthy companies with a healthy business model and a healthy approach will survive. That's, yeah, that's unfortunately what's going to happen. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, maybe, maybe as, as a side note on this, uh, Jan, it would be, uh, uh, would be great if we can point out, you know, later and I can put that into the show notes or so. Um, maybe, uh, you know, you uh, giving me a couple of names of these, you know, type of companies where you say, okay, you know, with a, with a focus on a certain thing, you know, a certain challenge, uh, solving them, you know, which yep. are interesting to look at and, and keep an eye on where you, where you personally say, okay, those are, you know, part of the healthy ones to, to observe and, and keep in mind. Yeah, and I'll actually be happy to connect you and I'll also put some of those in the upcoming blog post. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So uh, definitely the, uh, as well, I'll put the blog, the blog post uh, or the blog itself. I will definitely um, put that into the show notes. Um, also going to uh, jump on that as well. Um, it's uh, always uh, beautiful to have something like that where you can, uh, you know, pick the brain of, of, of an interesting individual such as you. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's continue with, um, with, uh, with your company. Um, you know, the thing is that I didn't really ask before we jumped into this, before the elevator pitch, obviously, is what was the background of Apex in the sense of you and your co-founders coming together and, 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 and basically starting it. What was the story behind Apex in the first mm -hmm. place? So how did, how did Apex happen? What, was, what, was, what, what triggered you guys in order to actually start it out? Sure. Um, so that actually goes way back um, to, the, to Ville Garage and the peer to beta program, which is where Ross started. So my now co-founder, Dejan, at the time was a PhD student at the TU Munich in Germany. He's originally from Slovenia. He studied and then did his PhD in Munich. And um, he was one of, of, of the greatest minds of uh, the, the software that came out of Munich. And we actually met 
here in Menlo Park for the first time in March 2010, when Velo Garage did the first workshop uh, after which the Pier 2 robots were handed over to the recipients. So Dejan received one in Munich, we received one here in Palo Alto. And um, then we started to collaborate first during that, um, that project. And then I hired him as an intern at my lab at Bosch here in Palo Alto, um, I believe over summer. Then later on, he joined as a full-time employee working on robotics here. And um, then later on, he moved to Germany to work at Deepfield Robotics, a, a German, also Bosch-funded startup in near Stuttgart on agricultural robotics with Ross. Then he joined me again, uh, working at Faraday Future. And then when that didn't work out, we both decided, hey, it's time to to do something our own on our own. Um, and then, you know, found that everybody's using ROS. We helped build ROS 10 years earlier. Everybody's been using ROS, but uh, there is no solution really to take ROS into a product. Hey, let's solve that. And then we started the company. I went out as a CEO and, and raised funding. Initially, we raised funding in 2007, just a few weeks after started the company from Lightspeed, which is one of the early stage deep tech uh, VC companies here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, then later uh, from Canaan, that our series A, another deep tech um, early uh, stage venture firm here. Then we started to see interest from car companies as well. So we very early, early on in our products worked with customers, with large um, car companies. Um, then those companies also wanted to invest. So in 2019, we then saw strategic investment from the Toyota AI venture mm -hmm. uh, fund. So Toyota's um, AI fund, and then also from Airbus mm -hmm. um, ventures, where you see that uh, there's applicability of ROS not only in automotive, but also in other mobility domains. And then uh, later on, Jaguar Land Rover in Motion Ventures, they have based in London, and Hella Ventures, so the German T1 Hella, um, with their venture fund joined, and also Volvo Group, which is uh, the venture fund of Volvo Group, which is the trucks and the cars and the trucks and the buses and the construction equipment, uh, which is not anymore related to Volvo Cars, which is the, now belongs to Geely. Yeah. Um, but so Volvo Group also invested in our company. So we now have a good mix of both financial and strategic investors. Yeah, definitely, uh, especially on the strategic side. Uh, is there a, because I couldn't find it, I couldn't find it online. Is, the, uh, is there a, a public number for the valuation of APAC? Um, no, there's not. <laughs> that number is not public. <laughs> um, yeah, but in, uh, in terms of the strategic partners, um, definitely, I mean, especially for, you know, coming, uh, having uh, uh, obviously a tier one uh, supplier as well, and, and let's say the um, OEMs as well, uh, that alone mm -hmm. uh, is also a very, very, very much strategic in terms of, you know, um, uh, use cases and, and the application of basically uh, your, your uh, products, right? So, um, mm -hmm. That is definitely a very, very good case for you guys. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I want to talk, uh, let's say we're already deep into this conversation and there's a bunch of topics that we want to, that, that, that we can talk about, but obviously to keeping the time, uh, time in mind as well. Um, I want to maybe close, uh, close this conversation with, uh, uh, let's say, um, a topic more, more or less, let's say going further into, uh, picking your brain and let's say opinion on, um, on, let's say the status quo, uh, within the whole space of, uh, let's say, um, quote unquote, or yeah, let, let's use the term new mobility, um, diverging from, let's say the old, uh, the old, uh, traditional OEM automotive space. Um, and that taking into account, let's say companies like Apex, but also, um, let's say new uh, mobility companies. What is your take on the entire space over the past years? And also taking into account, let's say COVID now, you already mentioned that your opinion is, uh, that there's going to be a huge, uh, let's say, or not a huge, but a, a cleaning sort of say, and, 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 and companies that, that will stay that, that have a healthy business model also behind it. Um, what 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 is your what is your take on on, on this entire industry itself? Mm -hmm. So I think there are a couple of um, of overlapping effects. So one is that over the past year or two, uh, we've already seen the yeah, industry overall um, becoming more realistic with respect to the uh, the, the the expectation. When are we going to realistically have level four? systems in the market so that started already before the COVID-19 uh, crisis in the sense that um, you know 2015 2016 a lot of announcements were made that uh, fleets of level four vehicles would be launched now in 2020 2021 and obviously that's not happened so now and and you know experts never really believed that that would be realistic. Uh, so that has been rectified already last year and this year. Um, now, in addition, comes the, the financial pressure, which uh, will lead to more partnerships, will lead to also um, companies that financially shouldn't really be doing it in the first place, giving up their ambitions to build their own system. and. Um, and then just buying it from suppliers or from others. And it will also, uh, in my opinion, lead to focus companies on really developing the technology that enables them to differentiate from others while then sourcing underlying components that do not provide a differentiator um, from suppliers. So specifically, I think once uh, we are over, over the immediate effects of COVID-19, we as a company, Apex AI, we will actually come out stronger um, because what we provide is exactly one of those software components that run under the hood. They are required. So nobody will be able to develop complex software without a software framework, without an SDK, which is what we provide. But that SDK does not provide a differentiator. So in other words, uh, you will not uh, distinguish car A from car B running running our software or not. It, right. it, it just works. It's like um, your computer works whether there's an Intel or an AMD processor underneath. 
Right. Um, and if it's not, if there's no label on the computer outside, you also don't see the difference. Um, so it's one of those um, uh, underlying components that do not pro provide a differentiator. Since they don't provide a differentiator, there's actually no reason or very few reasons for car companies or for mobility companies to develop that in-house. So they're much better off both financially, but also with respect to development speed, just sourcing it and we have it available and developed and are licensing it today actually. So then again, I mean, the question that, that, that can be raised is, um, if we take traditional vehicle um, uh, manufacturers, uh, either that be whatever sort of vehicle that 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 be, right? Um, it being equipped with different, let's say, parts, so to say, because it uh, it's not really, let's say, um, strategically useful for them to develop it in-house. How mm -hmm. then? How then do you think does the future then ultimately look like for the traditional industry or the traditional vehicle producer? Do you do you believe that let's say, you know, with um, obviously uh, seeing the the, the big um, traditional OEMs, for example, now really going hard into let's say, sort of say trying to transform into more, let's say, um, or really yeah, kind of hard hardcore trying to transform themselves into a more let's say um, a software software company and let's say with a mm -hmm. Or core strength, kind of to build out a core strength in software. Um, mm -hmm. do, you, do you believe that is that is a that is ultimately a smart approach, or do you believe because uh, you know from from what you from what you said, it, it still then sounds sounds the way that okay, you know there's there's you know these individual solutions you know are better to be let's say purchased by um, you know from from these you know from companies like for example you. And, and, and other uh, companies that are specialized in certain, certain uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether that's a smart approach or not, uh, I think only time will tell. Um, but w w what I can speak to is actually what it, you know, what it takes to become a software mobility company. It's not just that you start a subsidiary and then uh, give yourself a name with, with software inside. The software companies actually have a, you know, the DNA of a software company is different than the, has to be different than the DNA of a company that manufactures physical goods or cars. One is a mechanical engineering company and one is a software company. Software, comp software procurement is different. Um, you know, talk, what, 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 what does DNA mean? Um, Software is managed differently. Software is um, procured differently. HR processes in an IT company, such as you know Google, Facebook, Apple here in Silicon Valley, are completely different from um, IT processes in, a, in an automotive company. And why is that so? Uh, because software is developed differently. A genius software developer. Mm -hmm. may actually have a, a, a much larger impact than a genius mechanical engineer because software scales differently. Um, the, the more modern, and that's also one of our core expertises here, the more modern the languages, software languages are you use, 
the 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 better software scales. That's why we use C plus plus fourteen and seventeen, whereas you know traditional automotive software is often still written in C ninety nine. Now, why does the industry not not simply transition? Because you know you have workforces of tens of thousands of developers. They all know C ninety nine, but only a couple may use C plus plus fourteen and may know and be an expert in C plus plus fourteen. Your whole tool chain, your repositories, your development approaches your expertise how to certify that software that is all stuck often in in software environments that that are 20 years old and that simply do not scale the way modern software scales and we actually you know we had to do a lot of groundwork developing tool chains putting together tool chains figuring out how to use modern software for safety critical environments in a in a lot of areas we've actually been done been doing groundwork and figuring out, hey, how do we certify a certain C++ 14 function that hasn't been, to our knowledge, certified before. Maybe there are certain um, aspects of C++ 14 that we shouldn't use because they're not as safe as they should be. And then we have to also make that argument to the TÜV to get it certified. Um, but ultimately, a software company is a, just, is a different company than a hardware company. So, so ultimately, what I hear is that you're, you know, from from your opinion, you believe it to be quite, quite hard uh, to transition then uh, from a, you know, from a more traditional perspective uh, into, let's say, into actually getting these things right. You know, and I mean, I true, I tr truly believe you. Um, you have to reinvent the company. You know, Aptiv did it by buying Autonomy. Autonomy, and, and, and they kept the management. You know, Autonomy is headed by Karl Ignema from MIT, who is a computer science professor. And he now also heads um, the new joint venture. And he's, I know he's working hard on making it a software company. You know, that also then comes down to, you know, the things of either partnership, partnerships or, you know, buying, right? So but basically um, uh, kind of acquiring then something that helps you to or accelerates your transformation. The question that, sure. that, that I would raise here is then why did, not a, why did a traditional OEM not buy Zooks? Is and the, the, the obvious answer is because it's very hard for a traditional OEM to invest over a billion into a software company in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. But for a more specific answer, I think you need to ask an OEM. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I had this conversation with a... a uh, one of one of our previous uh, podcasts uh, guests, um, mm -hmm. where he also ultimately said, I mean, you know, if we look at the acquisition history of of traditional OEMs, uh, and maybe you know, laying a focus here in Germany, um, it it is not really that rich, you know, it is not really uh, where where you would say, okay, you know, with all that money that is available at hand and, and ultimately also the market cap uh, that there's not really that many acquisitions or even, you know, more or less bigger mm -hmm. investments in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, sure. 
but you know it's 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 not just spending 1.2 billion for zooks and then you're done <laughs> you still have to uh, uh, integrate your company and and the company you're acquiring a lot of mnas actually fail look for instance at intel intel has has actually a history of unsuccessful mnas let's see what comes out of um, the mobile acquisition Intel bought Mobileye for 15.3 billion a couple of years ago um, to to enhance the automotive business. Um, but you know, M&A is not simple. And if you have a let's say a very traditional uh, workforce and company in in Germany, which you know has been very successful building cars for many many years, uh, rightfully so because the cars are great. Uh, it's not straightforward and simple to uh, integrate that with a Silicon Valley company, which may be perceived to be a little, little chaotic, uh, probably doesn't have as many processes as a German traditional company does, which has advantages or disadvantages. I'm not saying, saying either one is good or bad, but it needs to be right for the purpose. And, um, and it's, it's, just everything else but simple to merge those two 100 I, I i totally agree with you um so jan what is uh what what does the whole a few a near future hold for you guys uh, or for you specifically maybe mm -hmm. um, yeah so we um this year uh, are finishing up um integration into autosar and uh, certification and then with next year end of the year we'll then roll out the certified product as well and then it's going to be all about scaling. So scaling to, to more automotive customers, or, but also scaling to um, other verticals. So for instance, we see a lot of application in airborne mobility, but we haven't had the resources and the focus yet um, to address those. So yeah. Next year, it's going to be all about you know, recovering from the crisis, helping our customers to recover from the crisis, and then scale with more customers and scale with um, um, more applications. Yeah. Um, well, great. Um, I, I definitely wish you uh, wish you uh, luck with that. Um, Jana was uh, very great uh, talking to you. Uh, obviously, a very uh, interesting conversation. Um, thank you for being on the show, Jan. Thank you very much and uh, pleasure to talk to you and thanks for inviting me.